0: Well, good evening, it really is a joy and a privilege to once again bring the Word of God to you tonight, and I'm excited to do that, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Jude, and as you're turning there, I invite you also to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Tonight, uh, the sermon is on Jude, verses 4 through 7, but I'm going to start at verse 1 in the reading. Jude, starting at verse 1 through 7. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Brothers, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to assemble freely in this country tonight in your house to worship you and to study your word and to hear it preached. Lord, I pray that it would be preached faithfully tonight and that you would accomplish what you want to do through it. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. When I was in high school, and I'm talking freshman, sophomore year, it was very common for me to get the question, what is it that you want to do with your life? I think many of us remember when we were teenagers, at least I certainly do, remember constantly being asked, what are you going to do with your life? Where are you going to go to college? What major are you going to get? Where do you think God is calling you vocationally? And at the time, the freshman and sophomore year of high school, the vocation that I thought I might be being called into was the vocation of computer science and programming and video game design, believe it or not. It's a little different. I ended up being a little different than that. God took me a different direction. But at the time, that's what I was thinking I wanted to do. I wanted to do a bachelor of science in computer engineering and be a video game designer and, and animator and do all that kind of stuff. And so in preparation for that calling, I began to study computers very carefully, study the components that made up the computers, so that I could build my own and I did build my own computers and I began to study the languages of computers and I learned how to uh, uh, script and program and do various things and I began to develop my own video games. And I released them on the internet and one of them had half a million downloads. So I thought, hey, you know, maybe this is what God might be calling me to. Now, it it didn't end up being that way. I ended up getting called into the ministry, and here I am in seminary, and here I am preaching to you on the other side of the country from where I grew up. Uh, God sometimes takes us in different ways. But anyway, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because while I was uh, developing these games, I got asked to become the administrator of a website that was designed for game facilitation and design. And as I was the administrator of this website, it was my job to make the rules for the website in terms of all the posting that the members did. And one of the rules that I put on the website was this. I forbade swearing by God's name and coarse language. Now, you've got to understand that for the, the online gaming community, that is really countercultural. Because they do not care about coarse language and taking God's name in vain, as you can probably imagine. And one of the moderators, one of the guys who was beneath me in terms of the authority level on the website, asked me, he said, why do you have that rule on the, on the website? That rule about swearing and taking God's name and, and cursing, he said, that's just stuff we do. Why, why would you forbid that? And I said, well, it's because I'm a Christian and my Christian convictions... Tell me that if I'm going to be a part of this website, we need to have these rules in place so that my Savior's name is not being taken in vain, etc. And I said, the Bible clearly says that these things are wrong. And he looked at, well, he didn't look at me. This was online. So he proverbially looked at me and then he, he responded to my message and he said, but, and he seemed to know a little bit about Christianity in saying this. But he said, why is it that you think you have to follow God's law? Can't you just do what you want? You're forgiven, aren't you? You have the forgiveness of sins as a Christian. God's gracious. You can just do what you want. Why do you have to follow his law? And furthermore, why do you need to preach his law on our website? And you can see kind of the the theology that he was using there. He seemed to have this understanding of God that God was just gracious to everybody and just forgave them. He took the grace of God and he twisted it. It is true that God forgives sins and that he's gracious. We all understand that, right? That's why we're believers. But there's something more here than that. That's a wrong view. He perverted the grace of God. And that is the kind of thing that Jude is warning his recipients about in this epistle. And so as we take a look then at verses 4 through 7, particularly tonight, I think we can see three primary points so if you're taking notes these are the points that you want to put down first of all i think we see in verse four the gospel perverted what kind of perversion of the gospel that jude is warning his recipients about secondly we see the result or the consequences of the perversion of the gospel and then thirdly we see the result of the true gospel What happens when people embrace the real gospel? How do we respond to that? What's the result of it? So firstly, then, looking at the gospel perverted. This is in verse 4. This is our text for tonight. Just to give you a bit of context, because it was a number of weeks since we last looked at Jude, you remember that Jude was writing this epistle to his recipients in order to warn them about something. He says, I wanted to write to you a treatise on salvation. But at the last minute, I changed my mind because what I want to write to you now is to contend for the faith, to hold to your faith, to contend for the Christian faith. And then in verse 4, he explains why. What's the reason? Why is he warning these believers to contend for their faith? He says in verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Notice here, he says certain people have crept in. They look like Christians. They behave like Christians, perhaps, in church at least. They have infiltrated the congregation of Jude's recipients. They have crept in. And he says even they're unnoticed. You guys don't seem to be seeing this, is what Jude is saying. They've crept in unnoticed. Pay attention. Watch for these people. They've crept in unnoticed. These people long ago were designated for condemnation. They're ungodly people. And here's where he says what they do. First of all, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're doing these two things, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. The the word sensuality there in English basically just means to fulfill the desires of our senses, to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, as Paul would put it. And it has a particular emphasis on, on sexual immorality. And so what these people are doing is they are perverting God's grace into a way for them to indulge themselves in the lusts of the flesh. They're perverting the grace of God. The word pervert there means to turn inside out. To flip it on its head. To make it into something it's not. They're taking the grace of God which promises the forgiveness of sins through those who believe in Christ and declare him as Lord of their life... They're taking that grace and they're twisting it and saying, oh, well, if God forgives, then that means we can indulge the lusts of our flesh. We can do what we want. We can be lawless. We can ignore God's law because we are forgiven. That's what they're doing. They're perverting God's grace into an opportunity for sin. They're using grace As a license to sin. And as a result of that, he says here, secondly, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the grace of God is perverted, that person who's perverting God's grace is in effect denying Jesus' lordship. Luther, when he was dealing with the issue of justification by faith alone in the 16th century, he very carefully defined faith. And he said that one of the essential components of Christian faith, true saving faith, is what he called the fiducia, which is trust, the whole putting of trust of oneself into Jesus, trusting him as Lord of one's life. And what that means then is that we don't just say he's Lord, but that he actually is Lord. He controls us. We obey him. We put ourselves under his mastership. That's, what, that's the result of true faith, to put ourselves under his lordship. And so when these people take the grace of God and they pervert it into something that it's not as a license for sin, they are in effect then denying Jesus as Lord. And so these two things that Jude uh, distinguishes as being a part or as being characteristic of these people who have crept into the church. It must be distinguished but not separated because they go together. When you pervert the grace of God as a license for sin, you deny Jesus as Lord. And they have done this. These are the people that Jude is warning his recipients about. Be aware these people have crept in unnoticed and they're perverting the gospel among you. False teaching. And so that's the gospel perverted. That's what Jude is warning his recipients about. And then in verse 5, he goes on to sort of explain the consequences of what happens when people deny Jesus as Lord. When they use the grace of God as a license for disobedience. He uses three historical examples here. And each of them have something to teach us consequences of the perverted gospel. In verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, some of your translations might say the Lord instead of Jesus. All right? That's that's true. Um, There are some later manuscripts that say Lord rather than Jesus. But the earliest manuscripts of this text say Jesus. And so the ESV, which is the Bible that I'm using, goes with that um, rendering. And that's important. That's important. It's important for two reasons. One, because it affirms the deity of Jesus, which is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And we see that in the earliest manuscripts of Jude, which is amazing. But then secondly, it also tells us something about Jesus. Jesus. Jude wants to remind his readers that Jesus, one, saved a people out of the land of Egypt. There he's talking about the Exodus. When when God led the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt in order to bring them to Mount Sinai and establish his covenant with them. But notice here, when when we read it in the Old Testament, in Exodus or Leviticus, Deuteronomy in those books, we're told Yahweh brought them out. But here, Jude says Jesus saved them. Jesus brought them out. Jesus is at work in the Old Testament. He wasn't just sitting in heaven somewhere. He was at work. So Jesus saved people in the Exodus. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. But then notice the second thing that Jude says about Jesus. It's not just that he saved a people out of the land of Egypt. But afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus both saved and destroyed. Jesus both saved and condemned. Jesus both saved and judged. See what Jude is saying here. This is huge. Because for many people today, including a lot of people who claim to be Christians, they don't believe this. They don't believe that Jesus is not only someone who loves and forgives, but that Jesus is also someone who is holy and judges and condemns. Now, why is, why is that? Like, what's the reason? Why would, why would one want to deny that when the Scripture clearly teaches it? Well, believe it or not, uh, I, the best answer to this question that I've encountered has not been from a Christian theologian, but has actually been from an atheistic philosopher. (laughs) You wouldn't really expect that for a a question like this, but I think atheistic philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre has an excellent answer as to why people do not like the idea of a judging God. And here's what what Jean-Paul Sartre said. This is his thesis. I just want to run through this quickly because I think it's it's enlightening for this text. Jean-Paul Sartre said, If man exists then God does not exist. You might have to think that one through and say, wait a minute, how does does that follow? If man exists, then God does not exist. Well, here's what Jean-Paul Sartre argued. He said, imagine for a second, if I'm a public speaker, okay, and it is, right now, my job to maintain eye contact with my audience, right? Right? You all know that is a cardinal rule of public speaking. Whether you're preaching or teaching or whatever, you've got to maintain eye contact with people. If I was preaching and I'm looking up here the whole time at that light and noticing how clean it is and then looking over here and I'm still talking to you about things and then I'm looking at the back wall, that would just be really distracting. And you would say, okay, let's get this guy out of the pulpit. This this is a problem. Or someone say something to him. So... That would be weird i need to maintain eye contact but what if say for example i decided to look at someone let's just say don i told you i was going to pick on you before the service let's just say i decided to look at him like this and i preach this entire sermon and i did not break eye contact the entire time now i'm still following the rule right i am maintaining eye contact with my audience but i can see right now he's getting uncomfortable just in these few seconds Right? There, I broke it for you. It's all good. See, see, if I stare at someone, that makes them uncomfortable. And Jean-Paul Sartre said, this is a characteristic of human psychology. If, if I'm walking around at the grocery store, and someone's staring at me for more than a couple seconds, I'm going to feel very uncomfortable. I'm sure you would, too. If I'm walking around anywhere at school, if I'm walking around on the street... If I'm at a stoplight and someone's looking in my window and just staring at me, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Why? Because that person is objectifying me. That person is judging me. That person is staring at me and he is taking everything in that I'm doing. Jean-Paul Sartre said, when someone stares at you, it reduces your freedom because it changes how you act when you know that someone is watching you. And he said, that's why if man exists, If man exists and is free, God cannot exist. Because if God exists, he is staring at everyone all the time, incessantly judging every single thing that they do, and that ought to change the way they behave, and then they're not really truly free. And so if free man exists, God does not exist. Now, you might want to go home and think about that a little bit more, but Jean-Paul Sartre is getting at something fundamental in human psychology, is that we as human beings cannot stand the idea of a God who looks at us all the time, judging everything we do. And why is that? That wouldn't be a problem if we were perfect, would it? But it's a testimony to the fact that we all have a sense of guilt. That we know that in ourselves, based on our own obedience and our own righteousness, we would never, ever, ever be able to stand up in the courtroom of a God who sees everything we do and stares at us intently all the time. And that is why, even for Jude's uh, recipients, even the false teachers that are perverting the gospel, they are seeking to deny this fundamental truth that Jesus not only saves, but he destroys. He condemns. Secondly, the second uh, analogy that Jude uses here, first one was the Exodus. second one that he uses here as a consequence of disobedience is he uses the angels. This is verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, Jesus, it says he, but Jesus has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, there's more than one way to understand exactly what angels Jude is referring to here. But I think he's talking about the fall of Satan. The fall of Satan. You remember the story. I think we all know this, right? Satan wanted to rebel against God in heaven sometime between the creation of the heavens and the earth and uh, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden when he was present there. Satan wanted to rebel against God and take God's place. He wanted to step out of his position of authority, step out of his proper dwelling, and to take over for God. And God kicked him out. You can't can't get anything by God. God kicked him out. And Jesus says in, I think it's Luke chapter 10, that he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's how hard he was kicked or punted out of heaven for this. But it wasn't just Satan, the angel of light, one of the chief angels that rebelled against God and was kicked out. But we're told in Revelation chapter 12, if you, depending on how you understand the symbolism and the numbers here, that a third of the angels fell with Satan and were thrown from heaven. They were swept up by Satan's great tail and were thrown down out of heaven. And this is an example here of Satan disobeying and the rest of the angels disobeying. Taking for granted the grace of God. Because remember, Satan did not deserve his position of authority in heaven before the fall. When God made Satan and when God made the angels that would one day later fall, He graciously gave them authority in heaven and and duties. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but that's what he gave them, as he gives to all the angels. And Satan took that grace that God gave him, that wonderful position, and he perverted it into a license for disobedience. And he said, no, I don't want that. I'm going to throw the grace aside and say, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Disobedience. I want you. I want your spot, God. God. And as a result, he was condemned. And here's what the condemnation that Jude talks about. He says, not only was he thrown from heaven, as we learn elsewhere in the scripture, but Jesus has kept Satan and the angels that fell with him in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the great day of judgment. Bondage. You see, the great lie of Satan, even all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, was that rebelling against God would bring freedom. Isn't that the, the lie that the world tells us today? Why do you want to be a Christian? You have to follow all these laws. Just throw that Christian stuff away. Put your Bible on the shelf. And do what we do. We don't follow any rules. We're free. That's the great lie of Satan. Disobedience of God brings freedom. It does not bring freedom. Disobedience brings Bondage; It brings chains of gloomy darkness given by Christ himself until the great day of judgment. And these chains, by the way, as Calvin points out in his commentary, aren't to be understood as chains that keep these demons and Satan in a certain location. But it's the bondage of the great judgment that's going to come upon them on that great day. And so that's Jude's second example, historical example of disobedience as a result of the perversion of God's grace. And then the third example that he gives here is in verse 7, and that is Sodom and Gomorrah. He says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I think most of us are probably familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah and what they were, the ancient cities in Abraham's day, that God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy these cities. And Abraham said, well, will you you save it for the sake of so and so amount of people that are in there? And he asked God this over and over again, and God is more gracious and more gracious, down to 10 people. But he still destroys the city because there couldn't even be found 10 righteous souls in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot and his family are preserved. They're led out of the city by God's messengers. But then something happens to the city. Fire rains from heaven and consumes Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice what, what Jude points out here. He says, it serves as an example By undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That is, the fire that came down on Sodom and Gomorrah as a result of their disobedience is a type of the eternal fire that is going to come down on those who pervert the gospel and are disobedient to God and deny the Lord Jesus. It's a type of the eternal punishment. In fact, the fire that engulfed Sodom and Gomorrah was so severe... That um, Philo, 2,000 years after the city was destroyed, after the time of Abraham, who, is, uh, who lived in the time of Jesus now, Philo, he wrote in three different places in his writings that there was still smoke coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah in his day. Now, how you understand that, um, that's, that's um, something to talk about. But he did say specifically That when people would go to the site of Sodom and Gomorrah in his day, in Jesus' day, 2,000 years after the city was destroyed, that if you put a shovel into the ground, you would still find ash. That's how much destruction came upon those cities. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the prophets, you see Sodom and Gomorrah used as a type of the kind of judgment that God will bring upon the disobedient. And so those are Jude's three examples. Now, what we're going to do next time is we're going to take a look at some more examples that Jude gives, but he changes gears a little bit with them. But for now, i want to stop here and just ask the question, what are we to make of this passage? We've seen the gospel perverted by these people that have crept in to Jude's recipients, his congregation. And we've seen what Jude says is the result of this perversion, the result of this disobedience. This has been, as you probably feel already, a little bit of a fire and brimstone message up to this point, right? This is heavy stuff. But I didn't make this up. I didn't feel like preaching a heavy message. This is just what the text is. I have to preach the text. But as we think about this as believers, remember, Jude is writing this epistle to believers, he says to, in verse 1, he's writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So there has to be some significant application for us as believers in this passage. And so what I've identified, and you could put more than just this, but I've identified two applications that I think we can take to the bank with regard to this passage. The first one, first application of Jews' message here is we as Christians need to be guarding ourselves lest we fall into sensuality. In other words, we are to make sure that we obey the law of God because that is the right response to the gospel. In, in the Reformation, Pope Leo X in 1520 released a papal bull called Exerge Domine. It stands for Rise Up, O Lord. And the next line was A wild boar has entered your vineyard. And the wild boar that the Pope was talking about was Martin Luther. And the Pope said, listen, Martin Luther, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, this idea that we can be saved by faith apart from works is going to result in what he called a floodgate of iniquity. That is, Christians are just going to see this as an opportunity to sin. They're going to pervert this grace of God into sensuality. That was the Pope's concern. And Luther responded and he said, Hey, listen, I understand that this is a possible perversion. I see this perversion show up multiple times in Scripture. Jude, Galatians, etc. But that doesn't nullify its truth. Because we are saved by faith alone. And the works come into play because they are something that are a result of true saving faith. And so as believers today... When we hear these warnings to the the people who pervert the gospel into an opportunity to sin, and the people who deny the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see Jude laying out for us the result of disobedience, the first thing we ought to think of is, boy, if I'm a Christian, as someone who has faith in Jesus Christ, I need to obey God's law. Let me not become complacent. Let me not be like the unbeliever's. Let me follow God's law. Let me joy in God's law. Let me be someone who delights in the law of God day and night, as Psalm 1 says. The first application obedience. The second application trust in God's grace through Jesus Christ and thank Him for it. Take a look with me at verse 1. This is going back to our text from the last. Sermon, But this is one of the reasons why I read it here. Look at verse 1, the second line. The recipients that Jude is writing to. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's the gospel right there. The gospel from beginning to end. Those who are called, who've been elected by God before the foundation of the world. Those whose calling and election was as a result of God's love for them. And those who are kept. Preserved by God. We must remember this great truth at the same time that we are remembering that we need to be a people of obedience to the law of God. Because when we're talking about obedience, it can become very easy for us to think that this obedience that we're called to in this passage is going to save us. Or that this obedience that we're called to in this passage is going to earn some kind of brownie points with God. That's not the case. We obey because the gospel is true. We obey because we have already been saved, because we've already been called, we've already been loved, we are loved, and we are already being kept, and we will be kept until the day of Christ, when he comes again. We're to trust in God's grace and thank him for it. Thank God that we are not numbered among those who will be condemned. You ever thought about that? Oh, thank you, God, that I am not numbered among those who are condemned, but that I am rather included in the number of those who will be saved. And we're in the number of those who will be saved, not because of anything we did. We're not there because we obeyed. We're there because Jesus obeyed the Father and transferred his righteousness to us when we were justified. And in a joyful response to that, we obey the law of God. Because the Spirit is at work in us and through the Word to make us more and more like Jesus every day. Oh, thank you, God, that I am not numbered among those who are condemned, but rather that I am numbered among those who are saved. Let's thank God for that now. That there's no condemnation for us. In Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus we. Come before you humbly tonight. Lord this is a heavy passage. There's a lot of. Talk of judgment. Lord this is. Let this be. A legitimate warning for us. Let this be a warning for us. To obey. You. You but also a warning for us to contend for our faith and to recognize, Lord, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And that we may not always understand all of the theological details of how all these things intertwine in the scope of eternity, we do thank you that they're all true. And Lord, we pray tonight as we leave here, as we continue to think and to meditate on your word, or draw us to Yourself. Make us a people of obedience. And also, and maybe even more importantly, make us a people who trust in Your grace and who obey not because it saves us, but, who, but be a people who obey because we are saved. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the great promises here that we see in verse 1 of Jude's epistle. That we, as your people, are called, that we're loved, and that we're kept for you. Remind us of that truth every time we turn to your word. and pray that you'd strengthen our faith as we leave here today and do your work. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response tonight is number 455. And can it be number 455? Invite you to stand.